Last week we began a series of looking at the issue of discipleship, what that looks like and how important that is to our lives and to our circumstances. And today I want to continue on that topic, dealing with the issue of uh, being a teacher and being a student. What exactly uh, takes place when those two entities engage? And uh, beyond that, how can we as individuals learn how to be both teachers and students in this issue of discipleship? It's a very important concept. It's a very important perspective to develop. We all spend our lives building something. Sometimes it's a reputation. Sometimes it's a business. Sometimes it's a relationship. But we all spend our times investing in something, building something, working towards something that we hope will survive our passing. Daniel Webster once said this. He said, if we work on marble, it will perish. If we work on brass, time will efface it. If we rear temples, they will crumble to dust. But if we work on men's minds, if we imbue them with high principles, with just fear of God and love of their fellow men, we engrave on those tablets something which time cannot efface and which will brighten and brighten to all eternity. This is, I believe, the essence of discipleship. It's working on the minds of those that God has brought into our lives to help them to understand who God is, to help them to understand who they are, and to understand how we have been called to something greater than just temporal issues, just things that will last for uh, but a moment and then pass away. We've been called by Christ to make disciples. And if that is our calling, if that is our challenge, then it's important for us to uh, develop some skills in discipleship. It's important for us to develop some, some mindsets, some, some perspectives. Last week we talked about the, the attitudes that we pursue in terms of being a follower. What, what are some things that we need to possess to truly be a, a good follower of Jesus? This week I want to look at what are some steps we can take to, to be teachers and students. To tackle this issue, I, I would like you, if you would, with me, to turn to 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 25. Now, the story is not technically about uh, discipleship. It's not about teaching and learning. But there's an exchange that takes place in this chapter that I think illustrates the very heart of what it means to be a, uh, an adequate teacher, to be an appropriate learner. The setting of the story is that David is on the run. He's been on the run for some time now from Saul. He's just had his first encounter with Saul in which he uh, spared Saul's life. And at the end of that encounter, Saul has acknowledged that David truly should be king of Israel. Verse 20 of 20, chapter 24 says, Now I know for certain you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel be, will be established in your hand. And so this is where David finds himself, but he's still very much on the run. And he's on the run because, number one, Saul is very surly. Saul, Saul changes his mind uh, quite often and quite quickly. Um, but he's on the run because uh, there's really a lot of work to do before he can even begin to take the throne. And in chapter 25, it begins, first of all, by notifying us, telling us that Samuel has died the great advisor to David, the one who has uh, instructed the, the prophet, the priest, the judge, 
kingmaker, really the spiritual leader in many ways of Israel at this time, the redemption after the time of the judges, he has passed. And so David, in, in some ways, kind of finds himself alone. And it says that there was a, a man in the region, in this wilderness that David was functioning in. He was a very rich man. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, and was shearing a sheep in Carmel. And the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name, Abigail. It says the woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. The narrative goes on to say that David, learning that it was sheep shearing time and so forth, sends word to Nabal through ten of his men to say, we're here and we've watched out for your sheep and we've watched out for your people and because of that, since it's sheep shearing time and it's festival time, we would like you to give us some things to sustain us. We'd like you to to take care of us. We're taking care of you. We want you to take care of us. Now, how exactly we understand that exchange is a matter of some debate. Some see it as almost an extortion on David's part, in which he is telling Nabal, if you want things to continue to go well, you probably ought to take care of me at this time. Others say, no, it's a matter of family relationships. It's a matter of hospitality. It's a matter of Israel's custom. And you can go any number of ways with uh, how to interpret this exchange and exactly what's taking place. But that's really not our focus this morning. Our focus has to do with what happens after David makes this request. Nabal tells David, uh, basically sends back word to him, uh, saying, I don't know who you are. You're not important, you're not significant, and I'm not going to give you anything. And on top of that, he implies that David is treasonous against Saul. And his response lends David or leads David into a fit of anger. And David responds by saying to his 400 soldiers, strap on your swords, we're going to war. And he begins this, this trek, this journey to Nabal to wipe him out. David says, May I be cursed if by tomorrow this man and all the men in his family, all the men in his keep are still alive. He's hot. He's angry. And we pick up in verse 23 with Nabal's wife. She has learned of what's taking place. She's learned of the response. She's learned of what's uh, going to transpire. And so she's running out to intervene. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off the donkey and knelt down with her face to the ground and paid homage to David. She knelt at his feet and said, the guilt is mine, my Lord, but please let your servant speak to you directly. Listen to the words of your servant. My Lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool, Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means fool or stupid, and foolishness is all he knows. I, your servant, didn't see my Lord's men whom you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. Let this gift your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive your servant's offense. For the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because he fights 
Yahweh's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Someone is pursuing you and intends to take your life. My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where Yahweh, your God, protects the living, for he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. When Yahweh does my Lord all the good, he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel. There will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed of my Lord's revenge. And when Yahweh does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed, and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Otherwise, as surely as Yahweh God of Israel lived, who prevented me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, Nabal wouldn't have had any males left by morning light. Then David accepted what she had brought him and said, Go home in peace. See, I have heard or I have obeyed what you have said and have granted your request. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we pray that as we pursue our life's goals, as we pursue those things that uh, are significant to us, relationships and work and uh, other parts of our lives, Lord, we pray that you would help us also to remember the most important thing about being a disciple maker. Help us to, to develop a heart that both teaches and is teachable. Lord, use this time this morning to direct us according to your will. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. And so you have this exchange between Abigail and David. And in this exchange, you see some attitudes that must be present for both teacher and student if discipleship is going to take place. Let's start with the teacher. Abigail is the teacher in this setting, although she continually and constantly refers to David as my Lord. How many times do we say that? I mean, it's there a lot in this passage. She is still very much the one who is instructing. She's the one who is changing someone's disposition. She's the one who's moving somebody from where they're at to where they need to be. And that's really what it means to be a, a disciple maker. It, it's, it's to be somebody who is helping somebody progress in their journey, progress in their relationship. Regardless of your standing, regardless of how you actually function in a very real way to that person, you have a responsibility as a follower of Christ to teach and to instruct. But there are some, some attitudes that need to be present. The first thing that needs to be present is willingness. We have to be willing. As we submit to the command of Christ to make disciples, and, and we make ourselves willing, there, this is when we're going to start to see opportunities to be a teacher. And that doesn't mean that we ourselves are perfect. That doesn't mean that we ourselves have it all together when it comes to the Christian life. Because let's be honest, none of us do. None of us have it all together. None of us are pursuing Christ exactly the way we hope we would, the way we should. We all have those struggles. We all have those blind parts of our lives, those, those areas that we continually and constantly fight 
over and, and deal with. Abigail here, her life is not perfect. She's married a fool. And you see that she does not respect her husband. You, you see that she does not have a great relationship with her husband. She's the one who identifies him as the fool, saying that his life is all that he knows. His foolishness is all that he knows. His stupidity is all that he knows. Now, the name Nabal typically is translated to mean fool, but it's probably play on his word or, or on his name. It's probably some sort of uh, nickname, perhaps. Some scholars argue that his name was actually Nadab, which means generous. But that certainly does not fit his description here. And so the narrator here is, is molding the story in such a way to, to communicate the truth of how we're supposed to understand these individuals. But regardless of that, we still see that Abigail is in a relationship that is not perfect. And yet, she is willing to what? To step out and to stop a greater crime. She's willing to, to take a chance here. She's willing to take a risk here. Her own life could be at stake here. It's not very wise usually to get in front of an army and to say, stop. But she's willing to do it. And she steps out here. And we need to, to be able to step out. We need to be willing to step beyond our comfortable lives and our comfort zones and, and to see that sometimes risk necessary in carrying out the ministry and the task of making disciples. The second attitude that we see here is that of humility. Verse 24 it talks about how she bows herself before him, putting her face on the ground. As I mentioned just a second ago, how many times does she refer to David as my Lord, my Master, now, we'll say here in a minute that it takes humility to be taught, and it does, but it also takes humility to truly, appropriately, accurately teach. Because people can see when you're fake. People can see and, and they can pick up on when you're putting on airs, when, when you feel like you're the superior one. When you feel like you're the one who has all the answers and they're the ones who uh, needs to just listen to you and get their life right. The only way we can truly connect with those that we're called to disciple is if we ourselves possess humility. If we ourselves realize that the knowledge, the insight, the perspectives that we have are not because we're great, it's because our God is great. And He has taught us, He has instructed us, He has in His graciousness given us new life. And so we take on that attitude of investing in others. Because if that attitude is not present, not only will we not be able to connect with people, but we won't be at it for very long. Because any teacher in here can tell you, sometimes students just won't learn. They're just not interested. And if yours is the attitude of I can't believe that they're not taking what I have to offer. You won't be at it for very long. 
takes humility to continue to dig, to continue to teach, to continue to reach out. A third aspect of being a, a, a teacher, an instructor, is to have personal concern for your students. It's interesting in her exchange here how much Abigail knows of David. In verse 29, she makes reference both to his present struggle with Saul, that someone is chasing you, that someone's after you, but also his greatest victory over Goliath. When she makes that statement at the end of the verse there, he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. That's a clever way of alluding to David's great victory over the giant. I'm sure it's something that he would have connected with at that moment. She knows me. She knows what's going on. And so in discipleship, we must know our disciples. We need to know what they're going through. We need to know what they're dealing with. We need to be listening to them in terms of what they're going through and how we might be able to best help. That means investing in others. That means spending time with others. Others that aren't necessarily in your group. Others that aren't necessarily uh, people you would normally perhaps connect with. And as we give and as we meet and as we talk with these others, we'll learn how best to direct and help and minister in their situations as well. And then fourth, teachers need to have a spirit that is inspiring. Now, you don't have to be a great speaker to inspire. You don't have to have great gifts and so forth to to be somebody who is inspirational. You simply have to communicate God's truth. God's truth in and of itself will inspire people to follow. Why? Because the Spirit of God goes with the Word of God. And that brings inspiration. In verses 28 through 31 here, Abigail outlines what God has done and will do for David. She shows him both the long-term advantages of a clear conscience and the dangers of feeding self-indulgence. She points to where he's at, but not just where he's at, where he could be and what good God could do through That's inspiring. And the text says that David does indeed respond to her. And in this response, we see the spirit of the student, the spirit of the person who can learn. We see, first of all, humility. As I noted earlier, David's at this key point in his life. Samuel has died. Now David is the leader. Saul has just recognized that David should be king. It would be easy for him to be arrogant, and perhaps that's something that's creeping into his life and into his experience in his response to his initial response to Nabal. But notice how he responds to her in verses 32 through 35. He starts, number one, by praising God. He acknowledges that it is God who is at work here. He acknowledges that, that God has something to do with the circumstance, with the situation, and so he is submissive to it. Secondly, he praises Abigail. 
He acknowledges the, the risk that she's taken. He acknowledges the role that she's playing. He acknowledges her standing. Even so far as to, at the end of this, he says, my translation says, I have heard what you have said and granted your request, which sounds like he's the, he's the uh, you know, he's condescending to her. But the phrase that's used there is a phrase that means, I've heard what you're saying and I am obeying your voice. He's acknowledging, at least in this moment, at this time, in this exchange, that she is the authority. Given all that he was and all that he would be, that is an expression of humility. And it's that humility, at least at this moment, in this instant, that allows him to shift his direction. Secondly, he is attentive. He listens. To everything that she said. I've heard all your words. I've heard all that you have expressed to me. In my own life, in my own experience of, of learning, where I've generally gotten into trouble is when I've only heard part of the lesson. And I can tell you as a teacher that, that sometimes that happens. Sometimes I'm amazed sometimes at some of the things I have so so-called taught in class. Dr. Pierce said, da-da-da-da-da. I don't remember ever saying anything remotely close to that. But what has happened, they've tuned in for a second. They picked up a word. They picked up a phrase, and they ran with that. They weren't attentive. And so they missed the real lesson and went off in a different direction. I've been guilty of that as well, only hearing part of the exchange. We need to be attentive to what the person is telling us, but also to what God may be telling us through them. What is it that God is expressing? We need to be malleable. That is, we need to be capable of change. David made a lot of mistakes, horrible mistakes, horrible decisions all the way through his life. He was by no means a perfect individual. He was incredibly flawed. But he did possess one trait that I think was significant, and that was he had the position, he had the capacity to change. At least for a moment, at least for a time, he had the capacity to move in a different direction, to learn from his mistakes. And that is something that is necessary for anybody who would be a student. Now what's significant about these two realities is how much they overlap. How we see uh, connections here between being a teacher and a student. And I think a, a big part of that is, is what God's trying to tell us is that any moment, at any moment, we are both teacher and student. And we need to be ready to move in and out of that perspective, move in and out of that mindset. How do we develop these attributes? How do we develop a, a teachable spirit? How do we develop a spirit that allows us to teach? I think there's several things we can do. Number one, it all starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. It starts with God granting to us the possibility for growth. 
our capacity to grow, our capacity to change, our capacity to be humble, our capacity to be attentive begins, continues, and ends with God's work in our life, transforming us, changing us, directing us, guiding us. But that doesn't happen until or unless we give our life to Him and let Him bring that change. Let Him make us a new creature. Let us let Him make us into something we weren't before. Because in and of myself, I don't want to be taught. In and of myself, I don't want to grow. I'm comfortable being who I am. Growth takes work. I'm lazy. But as God teaches and directs and changes and molds, guides, I see that there's something greater. I see that there's something more significant. I see that growth is not only possible, it's necessary. And so I work to that end as the Spirit empowers me. And we need to understand that that all of us are of that mindset, even those with a great work ethic in terms of their day-to-day jobs. When it comes to working on ourselves, we all have a mindset of laziness. We all have a mindset of good enough is good enough. God calls us to something more, and the Spirit of God teaches us how to do that. And so as we surrender ourselves to Christ, He helps us to begin to change, transform. Step two, we need to make growth a priority. Coming to Christ, learning that, experiencing that, recognizing that change has to happen. That's a a big step. That's a huge step. That's where it all begins. But we have to make it a priority in our day-to-day life as well. Christian life is a, is a life where we're daily dying to ourselves, where we're daily making this commitment. It's not a commitment that you make at one moment in your life and then walk away and forget about it, never uh, revisiting it again. It is a journey that we take, and that journey must involve making growth a priority. In my years as a teacher, as a pastor, I've come across a lot of different students. I've come across some individuals that were incredibly gifted, that things came to so quickly and so easily, and I've come upon others who really struggled with even the most basic information. But what I've seen in those years is that It really doesn't matter what your mental capacity is. It matters what your attitude is toward growth is. Do I want to be something more than I am right now? That's the difference between a good student and a poor student. Because I've seen a lot of wasted potential. Very brilliant minds. Because they didn't care about where they were going. And I've seen some students rise well above what anybody thought they were capable of because they were committed to it. 
And let me just say, that reality is not just about education and learning. That reality is about life. Who you are as a Christian, as a believer in your walk and in your journey will largely be determined by what you make a priority and what you pursue in your day-to-day life. Third, you need to, we need to look for teachable moments, both as a teacher and a student. Look for those times when teaching can take place. And we do that not through the mindset of arrogance. I told you so. That never taught anybody anything except for how to be angry. But we come alongside people. And, and we, in, our, in humility, in, in reaching out, we help them to respond. And fourth, we keep track of what we've learned. Keep track of what we've learned. Journaling. Now, I grew up in a, in a generation that was just kind of being introduced to that. Generations before me, it really wasn't anything that you did really on a consistent basis. Girls sometimes had diaries, but journaling was certainly not something you Let me just encourage you. It is a discipline to develop where you're keeping track of lessons that are learned. You're keeping track of of things that you've experienced, things that you've been taught, and that you go back through those journals every once in a while and you see what God has done. You see where God has directed you. You see how God has led you. And it helps you to see that you're not the person you were a year ago. You're not the person you were two years ago in tangible ways. I was struggling with that before, but God, you've delivered me through this issue. You've helped me to see. You've helped me to grow. You've helped me to learn. And if you've helped me with those issues, you can help me with the issues that I'm facing today. That helps us to develop a a teachable attitude, a teachable mindset and spirit to things that we will encounter. Fifth, we need to ask questions. There's two types of questions we need to be ready to ask. We need to be ready to ask the hard questions about ourselves. Where can I grow? What are the things that are standing in the way of my relationship with God and my call to disciple and help others? But we also need to be able and willing to ask questions that just basically involve knowledge. We don't know because we don't ask. So we never get the answers we're looking for. And finally, we need to develop humility. A person who is truly humble, as I've already noted, is a person who can both teach and be taught. Booker T. Washington was an incredible man. A man who uh, self-taught in many ways. A man who worked and invested and grew and eventually became president, principal of 
Tuskegee Institute. One day he was out walking through town, a very affluent part of town, and a lady was there, and she didn't recognize who he was. She didn't know who he was, and, and so she she said to him, she "said Boy, do you, would you like to earn some money? I got some wood that needs to be chopped out back, and if you want some money, I'll pay you to chop it for me." And so, Doctor Washington took off his jacket, walked back there, and rolled up his sleeves and chopped her all that wood for her. a little girl who was in the house and she recognized and after he left she told the lady that was Booker T. Washington president of Tuskegee Institute and the lady was mortified she couldn't believe she had treated this renowned citizen in their city this way so the next day she paid a visit to him at his office she began to apologize for what she'd done and for her attitude towards him. And he said, it's all right. I enjoyed the exercise. And he said, besides that, it's always good to help out a friend. She had treated him with disrespect. She had treated him in a way that diminished him in many ways. But he what? He considered her a friend. And in that exchange, they developed a, a relationship, a friendship. He was able to teach, to disciple her in many ways because of his humility toward her. But he was willing, he was also able himself to learn and to grow because of his humility. Well, we need to develop humility. There are many things in Scripture that it says are on God's shoulders when it comes to our life. Faith, grace, all of those things are gifts from God. But repeatedly, constantly throughout Scripture, it says, humble yourself. Humble yourself. It's a call to us to place ourselves under God's direction. And as we come to the time of decision this morning, I ask you, and I ask myself, have we humbled ourselves to where we can hear God speak, to where we can be taught by others, and to where we can teach others authentically and helpfully. If not, it's time for us to humble ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here. God, I pray that um, in some way you were able to, to speak to hearts here this morning beyond my limited capacity and my abilities. Lord, I pray that you were able you were able to to connect with hearts and minds. And as we come to a time of decision here this morning, 
But first, if there's anyone here who does not know you, does not have a relationship with you, that you would draw them in your grace and mercy and power and that they would respond in faith and begin a journey of life and hope and joy that you alone can grant. God, I also pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning, those who have made that decision to follow you, those who are believers and who are committed to you. God, I pray that you'd help each of us to develop hearts that are teachable and that desire to teach. Help us to grow a spirit of humility. Help us to submit to you on a daily basis. God, use this time of decision to help us to respond. We love you and we praise you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.